good evening. It's good to be with you. If you've got your Bible, I encourage you to turn with me to the book of Ephesians, chapter 5. We'll begin there in just a moment. I appreciate all the men who've led us in worship so far today. It's been not only this morning, but even this evening, it's been very helpful. I hope some of you have gotten some naps this afternoon. We've had some tired days, but we hope we're all back together and where we need to be. You know, why did I love that passage in, in Joshua? I've often thought about having some memorial stones and kind of a legacy. Each congregation needs to know its history. And each of you that's a member of this church needs to know the history of this church. It's important to know those things. But in the book of Peter, Peter refers to us as living stones. So the stones are around us, and that's what we see. And we're glad to have each of you with us this evening. In the Atlanta Constitution many years ago, this ad was placed. Single female seeks companionship. I'm a very good-looking girl who loves to play. I love long walks in the woods, riding in your pickup, hunting, fishing, camping, cozy winter nights, lying by the fire. I'll be waiting for you at the front door to come home every day. Candlelight dinners will have me eating out of your hand. Please call, there's a phone number, and ask for Daisy. Within the next month, over 1,500 phone calls were made to the Atlanta Humane Society asking about a dog named Daisy. You know, this evening, what we want to do is we want to spend a little bit of time talking about the subject of marriage, but particularly, as we say on our sign there, just when the marriage sign comes down. We have a lot of weddings. We've had a lot of weddings recently. We've got those who are still to come to get married. We've got those who are thinking about that. We're those who are newly married. And then there's a bunch of us that's been married for some time. And what I have found through the years is oftentimes a couple and their families pour a ton, a ton of time, energy, and finances into a wedding, and they forget about the marriage that comes after the wedding. Uh, most weddings, the mothers cry, and the fathers walk along saying, how much does that cost? And I have been there myself many times. But we need to see how important it is that we build a relationship as God wants us to have. And to understand, you can have the most beautiful wedding, but a very sorry marriage. And Hollywood is a good description of that. They'll have these exotic weddings, and the marriage lasts just a few months, and it's over. And the people of God got to know better than that. And we have to understand that to have the relationships that God wants us to have, we pour our real attention and our energy and our efforts into a marriage more so than into the wedding. And so that's what we're going to look at this evening as we consider this. In the book of Ephesians, as we know so well, the Bible's concept of a marriage is a reflection of God. And as we've heard before at different weddings, it is God who comes up with the idea of a husband and wife. book of Genesis, it's God's idea. It's not man, and then we bring God to this. It's God's idea, and he brings us to that. But I want you to notice over in the book of Ephesians, chapter 5, and we'll be coming back to this later on in our lesson. But I want to just scan through some sections here. And I want you to notice some things with me. We begin in verse 22 of Ephesians 5, where the apostle begins by talking about wives. The very next verse, verse 23, talks about husbands. We go to chapter 6, verse 1, it's children. And then chapter 6, verse 4, it's fathers. And then in chapter 6, verse 5, it's slaves. Relationships, relationships, relationships. 
Now notice what follows after he does these things. What follows as we look at these things, as we get to chapter 6 and verse 11, he immediately brings up the evil one. Put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Now, I don't think that's just coincidence. He's going through all these relationships and talking about how God wants his relationships to be and then wraps this up. I say, let's talk about the devil a little bit. I think he's doing this on purpose to say that the devil is attacking all these relationships. You'll also notice two verses later in verse 13, he brings this up again. He says, take on the full armor of God that you may be able to resist in the evil day, having done everything to stand firm. And then again in verse 16, he'll say, in addition to all, take it up the shield of faith with which you'll be able to extinguish all the flaming missiles of the evil one. So what's interesting is all these relationships, whether we talk about the, the master-slave, the parent-child, the role of the father, we talk about husband and wife, immediately following that is all these attacks by Satan. And I think what the apostles want us to see is the relationships that mean so much to us, that are so dear to us. That's what Satan's after. And so this evening what I want to do is I want to look at four ways Satan looks and tries to mess up our marriages. And once again, as I've been trying to emphasize here, you can have a beautiful wedding, but it takes the marriage that really was going to please God. And so the first way we want to look at this and consider some things along this line is to understand that Satan convinces us that if we're not eye to eye on everything, we're not compatible. And that's just the easy, nice, slick way of end of marriage. We're just different. We thought we were the same, but now we're not. We're incompatible. So let's just have what's commonly called a no-fault divorce. It's not your fault. It's not my fault. Let's just end this in a polite way because we are not compatible. We're not the same way. Now, Genesis chapter 2, when God made Adam and Eve, he created Eve to be a helpmate a compliment suitable for him, but he's not the same. She is not the same as he is. He's not the same as she is. And that, that takes us again back to the book of Ephesians in chapter 5. Men and women are different. We have different backgrounds, different personalities, different needs, different spirits, different emotions, different physical way we look, different sleep habits, different food choices, different movie tastes, different amounts of time to get ready. One person said, only a woman can understand the difference between ivory, off-white, and eggshell. And I've stood in paint stores before and said, do you see the difference? And I said, no, I don't. I don't see any. Aren't they the same? Only a woman, one writer said, understands why a woman needs five pair of black shoes. And only a woman understands when we're at the restaurant, she goes to the bathroom with another woman. We, those are some things men don't understand. We are not the same. So back here in Ephesians chapter 5, I want you to notice verse 22, then we're going back up to verse 21. Verse 22, where we just highlighted a minute ago, it says, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. Now, sometimes in our society today, that has just a sour taste in a lot of people's mouth. It seems old-fashioned, it seems out of place, but I want you to notice verse 21 above it. Because there the apostle says that we are to be subject to one another. Every single person is to be subject and so for a man to get on his high horse and says, woman, you have to be subject to me, but I'm subject to no one, is misunderstanding the Bible. The very concept of subjection is that we don't, we don't agree. I mean, if you say, let's go through that door, and I want to go through that door, I'm not subject to you. It's what I want to do anyway. 
It's when I want to go through that door, and you want to go through that door, and I say, well, you know what? You go your way, and I go my way, but we're not together. So I bend my will, and let's go together. That's the concept of subjection. And that's why this is brought up throughout the marriage, as we see how important this is as God tries to get us to see. So we're not going to be eye to eye on everything. We're not going to be eye to eye on several things. We're bringing in two different concepts together. But these concepts mix together. Like you're putting paint together or two rivers coming together. And they merge and they make one. That is the idea that God wants as we think about this marriage. There's a couple of towns over in Illinois. And I'll be going to one of them real soon here. One's called Normal, Illinois. And the other's called Oblong. And in the local paper, it said one time, normal man marries oblong woman. <laughs> yeah, That's, that speaks volumes, doesn't it? It really does. And so, so this idea is what Satan wants you to see. Satan wants to accent the differences. Satan wants to remind you that you're not alike, you're not going to get along, and this doesn't have, have any destiny whatsoever. And God has shown us the other way. And so marriage is about two people, two people who are not the same, but who God loves and God is still working with. And so as we consider some passages, let's go over to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And again, we remind ourselves as we read this passage so often in weddings, this is not about marriage. Chapter 12, chapter 13, chapter 14 is a long section that Paul is addressing questions about spiritual gifts. Chapter 12, verse 1 begins this section. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, he was asked questions, now he's answering the questions. So in the midst of this, when we get to chapter 13, Paul didn't say, oh man, I forgot, I got a wedding this weekend. I better write down some stuff. No, it has nothing to do with weddings. What it has to do with is you and me. How do we get along when we don't get along? You want this and I want this. In the context of 1 Corinthians, some thought that speaking in tongues made them superior to others because they thought that everyone wanted to speak in tongues. Those who could not speak in tongues were deemed less valuable, less important than those who could speak in tongues. And so in this section about spiritual gifts, who gets them, how are they to be used, how are they to be regulated, he begins in chapter 13 and verse 4 by saying, love is patient. Love is kind, is not jealous, does not brag, is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly, it does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account of wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, love never fails. Now, the purpose of all this is to understand, as a church, the church at Corinth, we need each other. We need those who speak in tongues. We need those who don't speak in tongues. We need those who speak in tongues to have someone to interpret so we know what they said in tongues. We need everybody, and the way we do this is by learning to love one another. Now, that principle applies now to marriage. And the idea that even though we have differences, we learn to get along, and we learn to understand each other as God wants us to understand each other. Again, just some thoughts as we think about marriage. We think about this idea of love. It's a choice. It's some words I used yesterday in a wedding. We need to choose forgiveness over holding grudges. That's a choice. You know, a guy went to work one day complaining about his marriage. He had a fight with his wife. He says, my wife got plum historical last night. 
The man said, the word is hysterical. No historical. She went way back. And that's what happens when we don't let it go. We keep that grave fresh. We keep visiting that grave. We keep putting flowers on that grave. Love lets things go. And that's a part of our relationship. Not only as we think about a marriage, but as parenting, as we think about fathers with their children, as we think about our relationship as brethren. Choose to think the best instead of the worst. Choose to think the best. So here comes somebody and think, oh, look at this. Look what he's doing. And we immediately think the worst. Choose to think the best. Choose to work together instead of against. Again, this concept of a team, we're going to bring this up at the end of the lesson, this concept that we're in this together as a church, as a family, as a marriage, that makes all the difference. Choose to have grace rather than perfection. The only perfect marriage was Adam and Eve, and that didn't last very long because they sinned, and then they became imperfect. But ever since then, we have two sinners in a marriage. Every marriage is that way. Now, you guys might think, I married the perfect woman. Well, you can say that, but she's not. My man's a perfect man. Well, dream on. He's not. He's not. Because all of us have a background, have flaws, and have sins in our lives. And so we either choose to think, I'm going to look for perfection. The same thing, again, goes for a church. I'm looking for a church that has no problems. Well, good luck on your journey. Because <laughs> you're going to keep looking. I'm looking for the perfect church. Not going to find it. I'm looking for the perfect shepherds. Not going to find it. Perfect preacher. Doesn't exist. The only one that's perfect is Jesus. And that's what we keep before us. We choose also, in this regard, to be happy rather than to be miserable. That is a choice. Years ago, I, I knew an author very well. Her name was Barbara Johnson. She wrote several books, and she and I kind of got to know each other pretty well. And she had this little saying that kind of trickled through a lot of her books. She'd say, pain is inevitable, but misery is a choice. You can't keep the storms from happening, but you can keep what happens to you to make a difference in your life. And then to choose self over other, and then to choose what God wants over what Satan wants. And all this, again, reminds us as we think about this, Satan is wanting to destroy relationships because he knows that they are an example of what God is. When we have grace, when we have selflessness, when we have a heart of a servant, those are examples of Jesus. And the world sees that. And the world says, I'd like to have a marriage like your marriage. Your marriage is an illustration of Jesus in the church. Your marriage is an illustration of heaven. I would like to have that. But when what Satan sees is us divorcing and not getting along and fighting each other, he smiles. Because he says, even among the people who follow God, they can't do this. So we must do otherwise. Number two, Satan fills our hearts and feeds our hearts with the idea that my mate should make me happy. And the other way of saying that is, my mate is a reason why I'm not happy. And again, this is the way that a lot of people get married. They get married for happiness. And so the pursuit of happiness is one of the rights as Americans. And we think that is the most important thing. The, the most important thing with God is the pursuit of holiness. Seek ye first, Matthew 6 says, verse 33, the kingdom of God. Seek ye first his kingdom. Not seek ye first his happiness. So, so if I begin a marriage with the idea that she makes me laugh, 
He makes me happy. That's the basis of this relationship. The moment that one of them no longer makes me happy, I no longer have a foundation for this marriage. I no longer have a reason to be married. The reason I married you is because you make me happy. Today I'm not happy. I no longer have a foundation to be married to you. That's the way the world thinks. And that's why God uses the word agape throughout the Bible. In the book of Titus, if you will, Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2. Paul told the young preacher Titus, in verse 3 and verse 4, Older women are likewise to be reverent. Titus 2, verse 3. Older women are likewise to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor a slave to much wine, teaching what is good, that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children. Well, that's easy to do. Why did you get married if you didn't love them? He's not using emotion there. He's using the word agape or choice. You love that person when they just upset you. You love that person when they're not lovable. You love that person, period. You love that person if they make you mad. You love that person if you have no reason to love them. God so loved the world, Romans 5 verse 8, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's the concept of love that's being taught about here. And so again, it's that idea. Now, young people will often say, I'm bored. And what that means is you have to entertain me. You have to take me to a movie. I have to go shopping because I am bored. And what we need to see is when we understand that what God wants in a marriage is not my personal happiness, but it's his holiness and his glory, that's the most important thing. Shirley Temple Black. Shirley Temple was that child star years and years ago. She grew up and became an ambassador for the United States. Someone asked her one day, what was the happiest day of your life? And she said, today. And the reporter said, today? More happy than your wedding day? She said, back then, my wedding day was the happiest day of my life. But there have been many happy days in my life. All I have is today, and today is the happiest day of my life. You see that? It's a choice. It's a choice. So every time we see each other, we can decide, I don't like you about this, I don't like you about this, or we can enter this with the right heart and attitude that God wants us to have. Now, as we look at this, we need to see it's not the responsibility of the mate to make the other person happy. Again, we need to put that before us. That's not the main function in a marriage. We also need to see and appreciate as we think about this, that Satan tells us some lies along this line. One of the lies that Satan will tell us as we consider some of the things he kind of fills our mind with through culture and through society, as we think about these things, if, I, if we really love each other, everything will fall into place. Well, no, that's not true. You may love each other, but your cupboard may be empty. You, know? you may love each other, but there may be no gas in your tank. You may love each other, but have no jobs. Love takes, a marriage takes some relationships and patience and forgiveness and work. It's also a lie to think if I just attend church services regularly, I'll have a happy marriage. And again, we know far, far too many in this congregation and throughout the brotherhood who attended churches regularly, but they still had a marriage to fall apart. Just attending church services doesn't make a marriage work. It's what you do at home. It's what energy you put into it. It's a lie to think that your marriage is divorce-proof if you're a Christian. 
That's not true. And the Bible shows otherwise. Each day has trouble of its own, Jesus tells us. And it's a lie to believe that if we're a Christian, we'll never be attracted to anyone else. And that, again, that's just simply not true. And so, again, Satan fills our minds with these things. And, again, we need to see otherwise. Number three, Satan tells us, I'm not the one who needs to change. And, you know, faults are like headlights of a car coming at you. They seem so much brighter than your own headlights. And we see the faults of others so much more than others. Now, the reality is your mate does need to change. The reality is you need to change. We all need to change. The reality is we need to get closer to Jesus. The reality is we need to be walking better to Jesus. We need to be more in tune to what Jesus is. But it's not our responsibility to change another adult. You cannot change another adult. And sometimes we spend a lifetime pressuring and nagging and getting on somebody to change, and they don't want to change. And all that does is make matters worse. Charles Carpel, a counselor, says this. Ask one question every day. What is it like being married to me? You ever thought about that? What's it like being married to me? One thing is, what's it like being married to you? What's it like being married to me? And that helps us to see some things. In the book of 2 Peter, in chapter 3, in verse 18, the last verse there, Peter says, let's grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So marriage, as we think a discipleship is, it's a growth process. It's a journey. And as we grow together, know each other, there are going to be some changes taking place. And we need to see when one has a heart of Jesus, they'll make the changes that is right. And then number four, Satan tells us that our marriage ought to be easy. And it doesn't take too long after you take down that just marriage sign to realize some days it's not easy. And some days there's disagreements. And some days love hurts. Now, we're not talking about violence here or abuse or any of those things. Those are all wrong. But what we're talking about is two imperfect people living together. And how sometimes there's bumps. And how sometimes growing up together and, and being together, we see these differences. And so love is the idea of learning to get along and learning to grow as God wants us to grow. Back during World War II, when England was trying to raise funds for the war effort, Winston Churchill, who was the prime minister at the time, was doing all kinds of speeches, putting all kinds of banquets, trying to raise money for the war effort. And one of the leading ladies in England was named Lady Astor. And she could not stand Churchill, and Churchill could not stand her. And on most occasions, they were seated together because of their prominence. At one banquet, Lady Astor leaned over to Churchill and says, Prime Minister Churchill, if I was married to you, I'd put poison in your tea. He leaned back and said, Lady Astor, if I was married to you, I would drink it. <laughs> well, you know, it's those little, it's those little jabs. Back and forth. You know, husband and wife wasn't getting along one day, and they, they were driving, and, and they were mad. And I don't know if you've ever been there or not, but she was looking out her window, and he's just looking straight ahead. No one was saying anything. They were just mad at each other. They were driving out in the country. They came across a pig lot. And she said, relatives of yours? He said, yes, in-laws. <laughs> well, that doesn't help, does it? That doesn't help at all. And, and we all know how to do these little jabs at each other, back and forth and back and forth. And what it does is it's like picking a scab. 
You know, we got a little child who's got that scab and just about ready to come off. It's just about to be healed. What does he do? He picks it off and starts bleeding again. Well, why did you do that? And we got to go through this process again. And just about ready to get healed again, there we go. We go picking it off again. And we can do that in the marriage. Just pick, 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 pick. And things never get to be where God wants us to be. So in your Bible, turn with me back to the book of Ephesians. We start in chapter 5, but let's go back to how chapter 4 ends. Once again, a concept that helps us to see this. Ephesians chapter 4, 31 and 32. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander be put away from you along with all malice. Now, what's interesting about those words? Those words are like train cars. One leads to the next, which leads to the next. You start off bitter. I'm, I'm just bitter because the way you cook my meal today. I'm bitter because you never pick up your clothes on the floor. I'm bitter, bitter, bitter. You know, we, we have millions of reasons of being bitter. That leads to wrath. I'm really upset now. That leads to anger. And usually what happens right there is angry words. Well, here comes clamor. Clamor is just like banging pots and pans together. You're just, you're just upset. You're saying things. You're slamming doors. You're just walking with a heavy foot through the house. That leads to slander. You start talking about her family. You start talking about his family. You start putting each other down. And what happens is it leads to malice, which just is as evil as it can be. So what he says is put that away. Don't be like that. And other side is verse 32. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. Now, here's what we do in marriage. It's like a game of chess. There's a big chess board out there. We just stare at it. I'm waiting for you to make your move. I'll make my move when you make your move. And we just stare at it. I'll forgive when you forgive. I'll be kind when you be kind. It's your move first. And we sit there and wait there. And we just look and we look and we look and nothing happens. But he doesn't say that, does he? You be kind. He doesn't say you be kind after they've been kind to you. You be kind after they apologize. You be kind after they made things right. No. The reason that you're bitter may still exist. The reason why you're angry may still be in the atmosphere. But you have chosen the right course. That's what's going to make a marriage work. That's the concept that God wants us to see here. And that's what should help us as we emphasize some of these things as we look at this. There was a ship that was built right after 9-11. It's called the USS New York. It's made from steel that came down from the Twin Towers. And it's a ship whose mission is to go after terrorists. And here's a ship that could represent all the things that are wrong, all the destruction, but it's made into something that's positive, made into something that's going to be useful, made into something that's good. And so Satan is after relationships. And what we have to see is he throws all this stuff at us. He throws culture at us. He throws the world at us. And we must take those things and make them for good. Now, how we do that, number one, is as a couple, we work together as a team. As a team, just like two rivers, as I said before, merging together. 
1 Corinthians 13, verse 5, which we read earlier, love does not seek its own. It's not selfish. The team concept of communicating, of defending, of supporting, and being there for one another, that's the concept that's going to help a marriage. We're in this together. It is our family. It is our friends. When people get married, it's no longer his things and her things, his friends and her friends. It's now our. Our things, our friends. Because we have worked together in that way. Secondly, a couple understands this when they understand the principle of the thermostat. The thermostat tells the temperature. The thermostat controls the temperature in the room. Sometimes the temperature is a little icy. And the thermostat needs to be turned up. Things need to be warmed up a little bit. Sometimes things are a little bit toasty and needs to be cooled down just a bit. And when we understand that, 1 Corinthians 13, verse 5, once again, love does not take into account a wrong suffered, setting the right temperature, understanding each other. Well, you know, he's upset right now. He's had a bad day at work. And I'm going to give him a little space here. I'm not going to tell him, you know, honey, you haven't done this, and you haven't done this, and you promised to do this, and he's already frustrated and upset. No, we're, we're going to dial that thermostat just a little bit. She's had a tough day, and she's just kind of at, at, at her wit's end, and you come in, and you say, why does the house look like this? What's going on? And you just dial that thermostat back, because that's not the time to do that. You recognize those things, and you help each other. And you do those things because that's what God wants you to do in this way. And then I think a third essential idea is that the man has to be the point man. And again, that's part of what we read there in the book of Ephesians, chapter 5, as the man is the head of the house. That's been misused and misinterpreted for years, that to the idea that that man gets to make all the decisions. Where do you want to eat? Well, I'm the man. Here's where we're going to go eat. Well, we eat there every week. Well, I'm the man. I get to make decisions. Well, you want to watch on TV? We're going to watch my game on TV. Well, how come we always watch your game? Because I'm the man. It's my house. No. That person totally misunderstands that passage. The idea of headship is you are leading. It's like our shepherds in our church. They are leading us to heaven. And the headship means you're leading the family. And so from the military, when they would have scouts... They would have one man out front, then a small group of men, and then the main unit back behind. The point man was to be the eyes of the unit. And those of you that served, especially in Vietnam, you know how dangerous that was. Snipers in the trees, traps on the ground, you had to have your eyes everywhere. And if he walked right into a trap, his unit would walk right into a trap and they would be killed. So he had to be that point man. And I believe that's what Paul's bringing out there in Ephesians 5, 23 and 6, 4. The role of the man in the family. So dads must be willing to sacrifice what they want for what's best for the family. Dads must have their eyes open and their ears open to what's going on around them. Because as, as their kids grow up, they're going to hear things and they're going to be attentive to these things. The enemy's out there. And dads have to recognize those things. And his job, just as our shepherd's job, are to nourish us and protect us and lead us. That is the job of the man in the marriage. You're to protect that family. You're to nourish that family. And so when someone's discouraged in that home, 
It's the dad's job to get them discouraged, to get them right with the Lord. When someone wants to quit, it's dad's job to jump in there and, and talk about them and bring them back as it should be. That is the role of the point man. Now, what happens so often in our culture, what happens so often in our fellowship, and I know Jason can say this too, we preach all over the country. We see mom and kids, but where's dad? Oh, you know, he worked so hard, he had to sleep in today. Or it's his only day to go fishing. Or it's his only day to do this. It's his only day to do this. It's his only day to do this. And what we see is absentee spiritual fathers who are killing the church. And what we need to see is, I believe through Ephesians 5, what God is saying to the men, this is your task. This is your role. It is an essential role. It's a role of grave responsibility, but God says you can do it. And that's what he wants us to do. And so that's the concept we see as we think about this lesson. So as we wrap this up, those are just a few thoughts I want you to think about. I want you to think about culture and Satan and society is telling us all kinds of stuff, but most of it's not even true to what the Bible says. We need to see what God wants us to do. What an honor it is. To see among us, those have been married multiple, multiple, multiple decades. Because some have been married 50 years, 60 years. What a compliment that is to what God says. It can be done. Gone through wars, gone through hard times, gone through troubles. Lifetime of cherished memories and good things. But it shows it can be done. Now, culture says, now you can't do that. In fact, when you look at statistics, this is what's really sad. Americans change cars not as much as they change their mates. We divorce faster than we change cars. We have a 10-year-old car, but my marriage is only six years old. And then, you know what? I'm going to get married again. Get married. And that is an indictment and a disregard to what God says. And so, some thoughts for you. For those who are newly married, those about to get married, those who are thinking about marriage, and those of us who've been around for a little bit in this land of marriage, to remind ourselves, it is a wonderful, wonderful thing. Of all the illustrations in creation, God chose the marriage to say Jesus in the church is like that. That's what God chose. He could have said it's like a man busting rocks one day, but he didn't use that. He could say it's like a man walking his dog down the road. No, he didn't use that. He said, you know, it's like a tree growing up. No, he didn't use that. He said it's like a husband and a wife. And when that relationship is right, it's just like Jesus and the church. And that's a beautiful thing we need to see. And so this evening, if we can be of any help to you, we're here to help you. You know enough to be baptized for remission of your sins. You need to do that because that's what the Bible teaches. And we're always here to help you. If you need to be having some studies, you want to talk about your marriage. We want your marriage to work. We want to glorify God. Satan says it's not worth it. Satan says quit trying. Satan says, throw in a towel. God says, you made a promise. You made a promise to each other. You made a promise to me. Promise to keep that promise. So if you're subject, why don't you come forward? Let's stand and sing. There.